Hello and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 130, recorded on November 3rd, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you again. I hope you're feeling at least somewhat better. Somewhat, but not 100%, but I'll soldier on. Hey, when there's big news to talk about, someone has to do it, Joe. Uh, And this week, we're going to kick things off with Fedora 31, which is officially here. Now, you've been all over this. I know you're a huge Fedora user. I am much more of an Ubuntu-based distro user. But I did check this out, and it does seem very smooth and very professional, at least the workstation edition that I checked out. Right. A big part of that is thanks to GNOME 3.34. Also, under the hood, a bunch of other updates, including a big one, which is remaining Python 2 packages that were in Fedora 30 are now pulled. So they're not in 31 anymore. So a lot of Python 2 things might break, as well as a big change to C groups. They went from version 1, Joe, to version (laughs) 2. Which did break some stuff for you, right? Yeah, it does. It does, because Docker containers use version 1. There is a, I think it's a boot flag. We're going to dig into it for this week's Linux Unplugged. But there's like a a boot parameter or something you can pass to Fedora and say, hey, uh, boot with uh, cgroups version 1, and then things start working. But in the uh, wiki for Fedora, they state, like, somebody's got to make this change. This version 2 is a better standard, and it's been around for years now, but nobody's adopting it. It's a chicken and egg problem, and so Fedora decided to lay the egg here. Somebody had to. Well, yeah, and the whole point of Fedora is to push things forward. That's, that's its raison d'etre as a distro. Yeah, um, if I could have one criticism, which has otherwise been a fantastic release. I've got it running on a couple of machines, and it is really fun to play around with Wayland, and it is smooth. The one thing is, under certain workloads, it feels a touch slower than Ubuntu, and the fonts are maybe just a touch off from where they are in Ubuntu. A couple of rough edges. If I were only going to recommend one release between Fedora and Ubuntu for this round, I probably would give the win to Ubuntu 19.10. That said, if you're willing to invest a little bit of time into Fedora Workstation, you can close some of those gaps. Uh, I've done it on my machine, and I'm really, really happy with the results, but I also ended up changing out how the fonts render. I had to look into what my scheduler was and all these kinds of things that you just don't really worry about when you're on an Ubuntu system that's on X11 that uh, sometimes can catch you when you switch to a Fedora system with Wayland that maybe has a couple of other performance regressions. Michael Larbel's done a pretty good job, as always, of doing the different benchmarks of Clear Linux and Ubuntu and the latest Fedora and really seeing where everything stacks up. So I'll try to throw a link to that in the show notes for people that love the numbers. Did you try out Toolbox, the new container system? Well, this was kind of one of the big things I looked forward to in the 31 release. It's been around in silver blue for a little bit, but now it's available for Fedora Workstation. So to back up, for those of you not familiar... This is a simple tool for launching and managing personal workspace containers. So you can do development, or what I do is I experiment with different applications to talk about on these shows. Well, in the past, well, even really until just recently, I end up with a whole bunch of stuff installed, and sometimes they're outside the package management system. They're maybe like something that uses its own package management, or it's something I built so I could talk about it in Linux Unplugged, or try it and talk about it in this show. And it kind of creates cruft over time. Well, this is solved by just simply running Toolbox and then doing Toolbox Enter. You enter into a command line environment that is a contained environment that feels and looks just like your regular command line. It uses your user and password, 
So it's the same UID. Everything works there. You can get access to the file system. You can create new toolboxes from within it. You still have DNF. All of the things that you like about using Fedora on the command line are inside this toolbox, but you're only mucking up this contained environment. You just drop right out, and you're back on your regular host system. I've only started using it, but I think this is going to be a great way for me to experiment with things because it's also really easy to just cut off a clean environment. So I can try an application in a fully clean environment that doesn't have all of these other crazy things installed. There's other tools out there to kind of accomplish this. Also, Canonical has Multipass, which does this with VMs and makes setting up whole VM systems really super simple. Toolbox is just at the container level, but it's quick and it's using a lot of their tech like Podman on the back end. And it is really easy to set up as well. I just typed toolbox enter and then it prompted me through all the setup of it all and everything and setting up the first container. And it just couldn't have been simpler. It seems to me that this is really going to hook in devs. Specifically, if you're developing applications for RHEL, then running Fedora 31 with this feature seems like a no-brainer to me. Allowing you to spin up a bunch of different containers like you would virtual workspaces is brilliant. But the the real kind of closing of the Uncanny Valley gap that they did with Toolbox is the fact that it's so easy to get access to your home directory. It uses your existing username and permissions, and a lot of the command line tools just act like you're just inside your regular native system, but it's all in that container. Um, and that brilliant integration with using Toolbox to just sit on top of it to manage it all and make it really dead easy is a winning recipe. And um, it's something they kind of needed out of necessity for Silverblue, but it adds a lot of value to Workstation too. And so that landed in 31, uh, along with not only the GNOME shell improvements, but new kernel and a bunch of other good stuff. And if you're on Wayland, Firefox by default now runs on Wayland, and that is a real treat. Yeah, I kind of knew that I was running on Wayland, but I didn't think about it, if you know what I mean. Things just worked absolutely perfectly for me. It seems they've really nailed it. I mean, granted, this was just an all-Intel system, but even so, they've really made it a slick experience now, I think. I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is if you are using Linux as your workstation to get your job done, and you wonder about the release cadence of Fedora, uh, I was so blown away with my laptop's smooth upgrade. Uh, I had Fedora 30 on there, and man, we have messed with the audio subsystem. We've got a bunch of custom jack stuff. I've got Steam games. I've got two different eGPUs, NVIDIA, AMD that I hook, and AMD that I hook up to this thing, and it has an Intel graphics card. So I've really messed around with that, with the video driver stuff. I've excluded PCI devices and then re-included them at different times for pass-through and virtualization. I've loaded so many different apps for these shows. I really abused this install. I had RPM Fusion repos, flat packs out the yin-yang, snaps installed for days. I thought for sure this upgrade would fail. And it dutifully went down and pulled down every single package at an incredible pace, because I think it downloaded three or four at a time. It ran through a transaction check, has you reboot, it does another transaction check, and then it just sat there and it upgraded 5,000 packages, and I just watched it fly across my screen faster than I could read it. And then it rebooted, and I logged in, and it was like nothing had really changed other than I just had new versions of everything. My extensions were all still working in Gnome Shell. My preferred theme, background icons, the way my terminal's laid out when I open it, all of that remained the same. Everything helped, except for the time it took to upgrade, which was probably about 30 minutes all in. 
it was a non-disruptive upgrade. They've really nailed this. And I've been doing this for years now on servers. I have a couple of servers that I just have a, I have a wild bet with a, a past version of Chris who used to have to manage servers for a living. I'm like teasing him now by running Fedora on some servers and just laughing as I upgrade them to the next release. This is the first time when it comes to the server that I hit pause and I'm waiting a little bit, but I'm going full steam ahead on the laptop. Um, and it's worked out really good, but the C groups changes just enough that I'm just waiting for a little bit since we run a lot of containers here at the studio. But you do also have your desktop machine, so that's why you were able to take the risk on the laptop. Yeah, although I put the desktop machine on Fedora as well. <laughs> oh, <wow>. <laughs> <laughs> went all in, Joe. <laughs> yeah, I still have all the studio systems on Ubuntu LTS, and uh, definitely while the performance is shaking out the way it is, that's going to remain for a long time. I don't really see that changing. I think for media production, you really can't beat Ubuntu LTS. But for a workstation, in the past, I, I kind of preferred Arch. This is like one one step removed. I got a new term that I think should take off. Uh, Arch distros are like roller coasters, right? Yeah, and Fedora, it's 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 like a rolling distro, but the really big changes have these ornamental dates where where, where something is blessed as a new version of something, and radical changes are all accepted at this time, and it's a clear delineation on when that breaking point is. Whereas rolling distros just sort of roll that in over time. Uh, like Arch has a change that's coming that if you haven't made a correction, which has been needed to be done for quite a while, you're going to get left out here pretty soon. With Fedora, those happen at the actual release number changes. But in the meantime, you're still getting new Firefox. You're getting a new kernel. You're getting a lot of new user land applications. You're just not getting a new shell. Your major shell changes and your version breaking things like going from C groups 1 to 2 going from Python 2 to 3, those are declared at the major version numbers. And that just works better for me. I just like that process. And I can totally relate to why people like Manjaro, because I think it gets you some of that with Arch as well. A little bit slower of that roll, but still get the fresh good stuff. So if Arch is a roller coaster distro, then you never told me. What's Fedora? It's a near roller, Joe. Uh, it's a near roller. Near. It's not quite rolling, but it's near rolling, because you do get new underpinnings, you do get new good stuff, but the Breaking happens at the major versions. And so it's, that's just about the right pace for me. Uh, it always has been. I've always li- liked installing the intermediary releases of LTSs. It wasn't until I tried doing silly media production on Linux Joe that I realized I was crazy. <laughs> but for the workstation, still get away with it. <laughs> well, whether you're using Fedora or Ubuntu or one of the other distros, they're all using the Linux kernel. And that's what makes them all so rock solid. And what makes the kernel rock solid is continuous integration. And finally, it seems like we are settling on a standard for that with kernel CI becoming part of the Linux Foundation. Yeah, I wonder if this won't be the de facto standard. The goal with a continuous integration system like this is to catch all of the low-hanging fruit that humans just can't be bothered to spend time doing, like all the different hardware testing variations. Kernel CI is a community-based, open-source, distributed test automation system. They focus on upstream kernel development. It was originally started in 2014 as a side project by a few engineers who were doing the testing at home in their spare time. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, a variety of hardware and labs have been created over time and contributed to turn this thing into something that's really quite consequential. Um, But they really didn't have all of the governance structure in place or the processes around accepting all of the hardware and financial contributions, and really to kind of extend this thing to make it the de facto standard. So I think the goal here is by bringing it under 
the Linux Foundation, this could become the de facto way to test this. Uh, we'll see. Other organizations that are downstream from the upstream kernel project have their own methodologies I think they're quite happy with. And I don't think this would necessarily negate them. They could just perhaps augment the work. Uh, like Canonical and Red Hat and SUSE with OpenQA have systems they're quite happy with. But a lot of them, and I, I had an interview not too long ago on Linux Unplugged about this, a lot of them have their focuses. Some focus on certain types of hardware differences. Others focus on trying to capture network events. So a lot of times you'll find the testing systems are really good at catching a particular type of low-hanging fruit. And so it's not always necessarily a bad thing to have multiple of them. It would just be nice if they could somehow pass data between them in some way, which that doesn't seem to be in this, but perhaps by being under the Linux Foundation, this might become the largest one and the de facto standard. I think that's pretty likely, especially given that the likes of Red Hat have signed on to this and thrown their support behind it, despite having their own CI systems themselves. Yeah, not just Red Hat. Um, it seems Collabra was a pretty significant contributor to this initiative. Also on the list, surprise, surprise, Microsoft. Not not really all that surprising. Uh, and the civil infrastructure platform, as well as foundries.io, were involved in all of this coming under the Linux Foundation wing. If somebody out there is making a chart of all of the foundations and projects that have joined the Linux Foundation in 2019, please share it with me. I'd imagine that makes for an interesting graphic. What we need is something like that Linux distro one that's on Wikipedia, I think. Yeah. Where it shows you the timeline and how they all split off and everything. Yeah, I can almost picture it now, Joe. It's uh, it's a beautiful graph <laughs> that uh, has one huge umbrella all above it. But this is nothing, nothing wrong about continuous integration testing. This is great to see. Unlike our next story. Yeah, this is a bit of a complicated one, but TechCrunch have reported that Horde, the webmail software, has got a serious vulnerability in it that has just not been fixed. It actually took me a couple of moments before I even recalled what Horde was, but oh yes, I remember. Horde is one of the most popular free and open source web email systems there is. No, it's not Squirrel Mail, it's Horde. Uh, and it's built and maintained by a core team of developers with contributors from all over the open source community. I think it's really popular in universities, <laughs> that's a big one. But a lot of mail providers will also just sort of rewrap it. Uh, and it appears that a security researcher discovered a rather significant vulnerability where an attacker could scrape and download a victim's entire inbox in Horde by clicking a malicious link in an email. So you receive an email, you click that link, and in the background, your entire big old inbox is downloaded. Yeah, this was reported by Newman Ozdemir back in May. He opened a ticket for it, and seemingly nothing has happened since. Now, I emailed him to try and get some clarification on this, and he emailed me back very quickly, so I'm very uh, appreciative of that. And he said that Horde had made some efforts to fix this, but they hadn't done it properly. But then I also asked him if he'd reported it via their security at horde.org email address, and he said that he couldn't remember, but uh, that there was no need for that because they have a bug tracking system. But that reminded me of the VLC story where... The developer of VLC was saying that people had reported things in the wrong way, and that made it very hard for them to to deal with it because you know they have a process, and if security researchers don't kind of follow that process, it can sometimes fall through the cracks, and maybe that's what's happened here. Yeah, it could be um, because they're they have a process to flag something when it comes through a particular kind of channel. It's unclear when Jan Schneider was contacted, a core developer of the project. They said that the vulnerabilities have, quote, 
the vulnerabilities have indeed been fixed, won't be fixed, or didn't even exist anymore at the time of this reporting, end quote. (laughs) I don't know. That really adds to the complication of the story, (laughs) because they have indeed been fixed, won't be fixed, or didn't exist anymore at the time of the reporting. Uh, I guess that means that it was a problem, but it's been fixed. Yeah, but then won't be fixed. That's very confusing. So I actually emailed Jan as well. Unfortunately, I haven't heard back from him, so who knows? But that's a very confusing quote in this story. Yeah, um, I imagine that they're quite busy right now because they have been slow to respond, uh, and there's probably just a lot they're dealing with. The thing is, is people get really worked up about these kinds of issues, so they're probably not too happy. Uh, if this guy did find a legitimate issue, they're probably not too happy he didn't follow the official process. At the same time, it's completely understandable that somebody might think filing a bug and trying to make a big stink and draw their attention to that bug is the appropriate process. It's, it's, I, I don't know how to really solve those two things, but I can see it from both their perspectives. I think it is still pretty widely used, isn't it, Horde? It's funny you mentioned Squirrel. Like, I remember way back in the day, my first kind of cPanel hosting account that I had, you had two options, either Squirrel or Horde, yep. when you logged into the webmail. And I never knew which one was best. I, I always found Squirrel Mail to be a lot simpler, and Horde was a lot more complete. You know, it's a larger piece of software, and it also Horde went down the white label route as well, which I think served them pretty well. I'm reading the bug right now as we're chatting, and the bug report is still marked as unconfirmed and does not show as resolved. But it's funny that something Newman said to me in his email is that all webmail software has critical vulnerabilities and that he recommends using Gmail or Outlook instead. Really? Yeah, and it made me think about how Exim has had a couple of pretty serious security flaws in it recently, and it just feels like the arguments for hosting your own email just seem to be getting thinner and thinner, really, and just giving up and just giving into the tide and just going with something like Gmail or G Suite or whatever just seems to make more sense now. And I don't want to say that because email is supposed to be this federated, completely open standard thing that anyone can host. But I just feel like we're almost fighting a losing battle here. I have definitely felt that way myself. Um, I think that has made me consider alternatives from self-hosting, but also things like ProtonMail, which are sort of, I think, a nice little in the middle. They seem to be really focused on privacy and security, but they're not an advertising company. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, it's a nice medium there. Uh, so there are other solutions out there besides just the big providers. It's just how much can you really trust the other ones? Like Google is obviously investing a lot of money into Gmail and they have a lot of engineers designing those apps, uh, the web and mobile. Does Proton have those same resources? Not necessarily. So you do have to weigh those pros and cons. Which is why the Proton Mail iOS app is going open source with the Android app hopefully to follow as soon as the audit's finished. Yeah, the real story here is not only are they open sourcing their mobile applications, the audit has been done by a well-known third-party auditing organization who did a comprehensive report that I actually sat down and read last night before the show. And it was pretty telling. And I'm really, I'm really impressed because not all companies would put this out there because when you get a comprehensive audit done, they'll find something. They always find something. They found seven low-risk vulnerabilities in the iOS app. No real major, major issues were identified, but one which would provide an attacker unauthorized access to customers' data without having physical access to the device. Additionally, a lot of the vulnerabilities were found in essentially account escalation vulnerabilities where people could escalate to 
higher paid tier accounts by abusing the app. Um, so those kinds of uh, bugs were found. And now the Android application is going through the same process. When it's done, if like the iOS application, it'll be released as a GPL application. Yeah, no, I find that very interesting that the iOS app is GPL3 or later, which is full-blown copyleft. But you can't really put copyleft apps in the App Store, the Apple App Store, because the Apple terms of service are incompatible with copyleft and the GPL. So it means that they must have a different license on the one that's actually in the iOS store versus what's on GitHub, which is not hugely consequential, but I just find it interesting. You wonder what their rationale is too, right? Because this is a big step. It takes a lot of money and a lot of effort to get this audited, then to fix everything, and then to turn the code all over and GPL it at that. So that's a pretty big commitment. And I think it goes back to the conversation we were just having. How do they compete with Google at scale, who has time and money and networking resources to throw at a mail application? Well, they write on their blog, by making our code available to the world and with the help of our bug bounty program, we can leverage the global Proton community to make our software as secure as possible. And yeah, that's, you know, of course they're going to say that, but I think that's what it is. They're going to leverage the benefits of open source to get their app audited at a scale that Google just couldn't simply dream of unless they were to open source their Gmail applications. I think it's pretty great. In fact, it's making me reconsider ProtonMail for a future project I have. I had been tempted just for the lulls to see what it would be like to self-host email again because I used to set up mail servers all the time. I got to say, though, I'm going to give ProtonMail another pass and see what they have to offer. I like I like what they're talking. I like what they're doing. And if that Android app ships and it's also GPL'd, I'm I'm going to really be impressed because then they've matched actions to their words. What about SiteKit for your WordPress sites that you're self-hosting? Google says it's all the rage. Yeah, Google asked the question, who is SiteKit for? And they say it makes it easy for WordPress site owners to understand how their site is doing and what to do next. And as a WordPress site owner, it gives you convenient and easy access to relevant stats directly in your WordPress dashboard and no source code editing and all the Google goodness how to give Google all the data from every visitor to your website in one <laughs> nice, handy WordPress <laughs> extension, which is open source, to be fair, but hmm, I don't think I'll be installing this. I love your skepticism on this. <laughs> um, you know why I laugh is because I assumed that like a lot of WordPress sites, they're already using all of this. They're already using Google Analytics. Yeah. They're already trying to plug it into Google Search, so they've gone into Google Search Console before. They probably have that identification process they've gone through. A lot of sites are using AdSense. Um, and you want to know what your page speed rankings are, so that way you can place well in the Google search. And so, in a way, I, I kind of see the logic of it, because you, you, go, you log into WordPress, and you get like a heads-up data dashboard of the health of your website from Google's perspective. And if your website traffic is impacted a lot by Google search, maybe this makes sense. It also is a freaky dystopian version of the web that I wish we had never arrived at. Yeah. Like, it really shouldn't matter. Like how how happy Google is with your site shouldn't matter so much that you want a heads up dashboard so that every moment you log in, you're up to date. <laughs> it just goes to show how terrible I am at marketing that I don't have any of that stuff for late night Linux. It's probably like really badly SEO'd. But uh, I'd, I'd rather have it that way than give, give Google all the data somehow. 
not only is it nice for users because you're not tracking them as much, but it speeds the site up. And there's really only one metric that matters, and that's how the podcast is doing. Yeah. If you're, you know, if you're a podcast, a lot of times they're getting it from the feed. They're using a mobile app, and so website analytics don't really tell you even part of the story necessarily. Yeah, and text-based ads on the website. I mean, no one ever goes to the website anyway, and if they do, they're almost certainly using uBlock Origin or something. But if I was like a TechCrunch WordPress site, because TechCrunch runs on WordPress. This might be the name of the game for them, right? This could be a big deal. Yeah, or RMG Ubuntu. I think that's also WordPress. Yeah, maybe they would be using it as well. I can see that it is hugely useful, but it just, dystopian is the word for it. Just reading through it, just how they make it all so easy to integrate all this stuff. And it just, it just made my skin crawl reading through it. Yeah. They integrate milestone notifications into WordPress to give you updates on how your website's doing, uh, which could also be bad news from time to time. But so, you know, if in a month you get a 31% traffic increase, you'll get a notification in WordPress saying, congrats on more website visitors. And it has a nice sun logo with a cloud and it gives you a nice little stat, um, which in some cases may also be a bad stat, but that's, that's, in, they, they pitch it as staying informed as to how the health of your website is doing. Again, though, because c- the sole metric they're going by is at least how your website's doing as far as Google's concerned, uh, which is an important metric, but, uh, site kit's a good name. <laughs> that's, that's Chris trying to be positive, Joe. <laughs> Actually, it sounds like an Apple product name, site kit. Doesn't that sound like something Apple would make? It does a little bit. Yeah. But it's interesting that they've gone for the Apache 2 license. It kind of shows the difference between them and ProtonMail somehow, that ProtonMail go for GPL3 or later, which is like as full-blown copyleft as you can get, versus the much more permissive Apache 2 that Google have gone for here. Joe, you need a podcast called Reading the Licensing Tea Leaves, where you can interpret the motivations of multinational organizations by the licenses they choose for their individual projects. I think what you're seeing is this is a tool to facilitate usage of their services. So it's not the core product, but it's like a product facilitator, you know? So they're like, yeah, Apache, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose so. Well, you know what isn't fine? Missing out on an episode of Linux Action News. So go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes every single week. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And hey, if you're looking for some work, Linux Academy is hiring from sysadmins to trainers. They have a bunch of positions open. Check out jobs.lever.co slash linuxacademy. A lot of them are remote. Some of them are in Texas. There may be a position just for you. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Russington. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. Bye.